Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Nice to see everyone in the room, and hopefully it's nice to see me if you're at home. <laughs> My name is Phil. Um, I'm part of the teaching here, uh, teaching team here of Vineyard 61, um, and we are doing the second part this morning of a, a two-part, quite packed series on how we find Christian hope, particularly in these difficult times. Last week, we began looking at how right now hope is such a vital, important word for us. Our whole world is suffering and struggling in many ways that many of us have never experienced before. And some of the things that previously, um, perhaps unknowingly, gave us hope of a good future are no longer there or as secure as they used to be, whether that's health, jobs, university, finance, government, or even church. And last week, I spoke about three realities upon which our Christian hope can be found in these times. The reality of sin, the reality of the spiritual world we do not often see, and the reality of the resurrection. And this week, for the second half, I'm going to talk about three ways that we can actually take hold of those realities and this hope. Last week, we began in Peter's first letter to a group of Christians, and we're going to start there again this morning. So if you'd like, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter, towards the end of the second half, called the New Testament, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It might be on the screen, it might not. But it says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Last week, I began with these words, um, always have a uh, reason for the hope that you have. But I didn't say too much about the verses that came before it. Peter is talking to a group of Christians who are under threat from persecution and suffering, probably because of how they were living differently in light of their faith. He calls on them to trust and revere Christ as Lord in spite of those threats. And then that's when he says, always have a reason for the hope that anyone asks. So what is the picture of this scripture? It's one of countercultural hope. It's as if Peter is acknowledging that in their circumstance, it's very natural and understandable thing to do would be to cave in, to give up their hope and their trust in Jesus, and to give up living out the life of good works for God's kingdom. And it's against this reality of life, a reality that many of us are facing right now, that Peter knows that when we're able to live out this countercultural hope, people will notice and ask why. Thirteen years ago, I was in an accident that put me in hospital with two broken wrists. Um, it's a story I don't have time to go into. Feel free to ask me in the Q&A. But the relevant moment um, was as I lay on the floor coming round to consciousness. 
I realized that I totally ruined the plans for the year ahead that had only just been confirmed, and who knows how many more plans. And in that moment, the truth is I prayed the most real prayer of surrender that I'd ever prayed in my life. I lay on the ground just saying, Lord, I've just ruined all the plans for the next year, but I have to trust you with what happens next. I spent the next day or two in hospital, but the one thing I really strongly recall from that experience is one doctor said to me, you are remarkably calm for someone that's done this much damage to themselves. And whilst the truth is I said nothing at the time, I knew in myself it was only because of that prayer and how God had done something in me from that posture of prayer that I had that hope and that peace. I can be open and say that peace did not last the whole month of recovery and I had various ups and downs. But in that moment, in that countercultural situation, my behavior was such that someone asked me for the reason for the hope that I had. And I want to frame this morning's teaching by reminding us that perhaps like Peter, we are suffering and struggling right now in our Christian faith and in our world. And we are invited to know that reason not only for ourselves to hold on to hope, but so that we can hold that hope more securely and become carriers of that hope to those around us. In seeking the kingdom now, like Ellie's amazing story a minute ago, partnering with God's will and people watching us and asking us why. So how do we hold on to this hope? How do we hold it on for ourselves and become this hope carrier? We're going to look at three patterns that you find in the scriptures for how we can do this, and I'll bring it home, these two teachings together with one final thought. Um, we're going to start off by playing a little game. Um, yes, Viv, we're playing a little game. A little, ooh, from Viv there. Um, if you've not heard me teach before, then you're in for a treat. We're going to go pretty heavy in a bit. So enjoy the levity while it's here. Are there any fans of the game Linky out there? We've got a couple of Linky fans in the room. We're going to play a version of the game Linky. Linky is a game where you are told five clues one at a time. And the task is to try and work out what is the common theme, what's the common link that's going between those. We're going to play a version many of you probably have not seen on the shelves. It's called Linky the Psalms expansion. Um, so is everyone keen? Excellent. It says here in my notes, feed off crowd fervor. So we're, we're going to have to play it silently so everyone at home can also play along. So I'm going to read all, yeah, sorry about that. We're going to um, read through all, I'm going to read through all the five clues. Okay, but in your mind, have, have a think what the clue is. Okay, here's your first clue. Psalm 77:14 says this, You are the God who works wonders. You have made your might known among the people. You are the God who works wonders. You have made your might known among the people. That's your first clue. The second clue is Psalm 92.6. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Anyone? Just put your hand up. Got anyone got a clue yet? Not yet. Being slow this morning. The third clue, Psalm 104.24. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's your third clue. Okay, clue four. Psalm 107, eight. 
Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Close. Don't ruin my punchline. And the fifth one. One gener- Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Does anyone now know what the link is? Someone shout it out. Exactly. Remembering the works of the Lord. At first I did have quotations with the letters R, S, and I, but then I realized I was overthinking it. So that is our first model. We hold on to hope by remembering what God has done. What strikes me is how different this is to perhaps I normally operate about thinking and trusting and having hope in God. Oftentimes, when I'm in difficulty, I sort of wait for him to do something, to show up anew and bring a sign of his movement. It's like God needs to prove himself to me again before I will have hope in my situation. However, the psalmists here show us a very different model. To the psalmist, hope is secure in the knowledge and the remembrance of what God has done. The other dynamic you'll see in the Psalms, if you read them through, is repeatedly they point to two major significant acts of God in the Hebrew Scriptures and in history. The first is creation, and the second is his release of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt, which is called the Exodus. Throughout the whole Old Testament, in fact, authors cite time and time again how God revealed who he is and his intentions by going back and remembering the Exodus. The Exodus to the Israelites and to the Hebrews and the Hebrew Scriptures were not just a memory of an awesome road trip or even a major historical event. It was the event that defined the very nature of their God. So by going back to that story time and time again, they are founding their hope in the works of what God has done before and the revelation of God's character in those works. At the start of my career, um, I did a couple of years working in in recruitment in the sense that we, we kind of built recruitment tools for people to employ people. And the core belief in that world is past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. Anyone here um, or washing a home who's been to a formal job interview will have burned in their retina the question, please give us an example of when you have. Sometimes, because this is what I do with my imagination, I imagine God being sat in an interview and someone says, please give us an example of when you've delivered on the hope that you promise. And he'd sit there for a moment and say, well, in my last role... I was asked by my people to free them from slavery from Egypt, so I called the guy I knew with a burning bush and then overpowered their gods and rulers and parted the Red Sea. I don't know about you, but I think he would get the job. But for us today, we have an even greater salvation act to remember that evidence is the truth of God's character in which we can found our hope. We don't only remember God's acts in Exodus for the freedom from physical captivity, but we remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to remember our freedom from the captivity of sin and from death. And not only do we have this opportunity now, we also have a practical invitation to do so. 
Before Jesus was crucified, he took a cup of wine and a loaf of bread and told his followers he was eating with to drink and eat in remembrance of his body that would be given for our salvation and our future hope. Now think about the timing here just for one moment. The disciples at this point did not know Jesus was about to die for this purpose. Although he said it out loud, we know from their reaction that they did not expect it nor realize. So Jesus was giving them an instruction that will not, would, would only make sense later on. Perhaps later on when they were suffering and the world was not going the way they thought it should. Do this in remembrance of me. So I want to make this very, very practical, and here's an idea we all may want to take forward. What in this season, if in this season right now, we chose to take communion every day? Whether alone, or with flatmates, or on Zoom, or as a family, or in your university halls, or university flat, whatever it is. What if every day we did that in remembrance of what he has done in the past, what that reveals about his character, and the hopes that we can hold from that in this moment? It seems to me like following the psalmist's model, this is a time we could do with remembering a lot more often what God has already done for us. So that's the first way we can hold on to hope that I think. Here's the second one. We hold on hope by holding all other hopes a little more, little more lightly. Turn with me, if you like, to Luke's account of the good news Chapter 24, verses 17 through to 24. In this timeline, um, before I read it out for us, we are just after Jesus' resurrection. He is risen from the death and he appears to two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem, heading to a town called Emmaus. But he appears to them in a way they do not recognize him. And this is part of their conversation. The disguised Jesus says to them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? But they stood still with sadness on their faces. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in recent days? What things, Jesus asked. They answered, the things involving Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. He was a prophet, a man, powerful in speech and action before God and all the people. But our chief priests and rulers delivered him to a sentence of death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he would be the one who would redeem Israel. And besides all of this, it's the third day since these things took place. Furthermore, they said, some of our women have astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, but they did not find the body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as they said, but they did not see him. In this story, we have two of Jesus' followers sad and confused that Jesus had not lived up to what they'd hoped he would be. They were disappointed and wondering what was happening and what God was doing. Whilst we don't know too much about who these disciples were, we can make some educated guesses from one of the key things they said. They say to Jesus, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. 
Because Jesus didn't come into the world as a proclaimed Messiah or Savior kind of out of the blue. But he came into generations of expectation and desperation for how life of the Israelites would completely transform as soon as the promised Savior and Messiah appeared. The prophetic promises of Daniel and Isaiah, which are two books in the Hebrew Scriptures, all and talk a lot about the Messiah and his power when he comes, his kingship and his destruction of all the enemies of Israel, enemies who had oppressed, controlled, and prevented them from living as a sovereign people for so long. To some people, therefore, at the time, these promises translated into a reality so specific that one famous disciple, we many of us know the name, Judas, finally decided after three years of being around Jesus that he probably wasn't the Messiah Judas wanted him to be and had hoped for. And Jesus handed him over to be crucified for a payday rather than retain their hope in Jesus. So for these two on the road to Emmaus, it's quite possibly their level of predetermined conclusion of what Jesus would do, exactly how he'd do it, that would lead them to be so sad and confused and loss of hope. But note as well what happens at the end of the story. The disciples actually knew at this point that Jesus had risen from the dead or had been told it would happen. And yet, for some reason right then, it wasn't quite enough. They were still sad trying to deal with their loss of their own had hopes of what they wanted Jesus to have done immediately as the Messiah. And I wonder if we're not the same sometimes. We can struggle to live both with the profound hope of Jesus' life here and now in a world that is not working out the way we wanted it to or how we thought or think God should change it. I dare say that right now I'm probably splitting our community in two. I strongly suspect that many of those who are listening to me in the second half of life are nodding along a bit stronger, knowing a little more what it's like to manage the balance between the great hope of Jesus and the kingdom now and the reality of the events they might have seen in their lives in the kingdom not quite yet. So perhaps I'm speaking to those of us in the first half of life when I suggest that holding on to hope in God will involve learning to hold those other hopes just a little more lightly. When I was 20, um, which is obviously in a couple of weeks ago, I spent a few months talking um, about life and faith with an older man from my church. And the reason I wanted to meet with him particularly is he was a father of one of my previous youth leaders um, in, in the church growing up. And the reason why was because six years prior to, kind of to this moment, um, this youth leader called Ben was at Bible college training to be a vicar. And overnight, out of nowhere, he just died, leaving a wife and a young child. And this sent shockwaves through our church. And for the life of me at that age, I could not understand why his father would still be a Christian and would still have hope. And if he was, I wanted to know the reason for the hope that he had still. So one of the first times we met, I, I asked him outright and I said, how can you still believe in God after what happened to Ben? And I remember it word for word, he just looked at me and said, how can I not? I think 
and I want to be really clear about this, I think that the great hope of Jesus doesn't mean we have to hold our other hopes lightly. It's what enables us to hold them more lightly. The empty tomb, the reality that those disciples on the road to Emmaus already knew about, is the only foundation of hope that can sustain us through the most intense suffering and confusion of our lives still groaning under the effects of the power of sin. And again, let me be clear, this is not about letting go of the other hopes or living or dreaming or praying in the kingdom here and now. We can and we must do those things. But it's about holding them loosely with one hand whilst holding Jesus tightly with your other. How are we doing? Had enough? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I think after these two weeks, I'm going to take a year off teaching. <laughs> um, so my final model, that was my second one. My final model is very, very practical. And then we're going to come in and summarize these two weeks. And this is this. We hold on to hope by choosing a diet of good news. Turn with me, if you would like, to Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes to them this at the end of this, this really joyful, hopeful letter. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God, the God of peace, will be with you. This chapter of Philippians is full of practical step-by-step instructions almost about how to be filled with God's Spirit, how to be filled with his peace, and I would say how to be filled and found and hold on to his hope. And in these verses that we just read, Paul is making one thing clear that I don't think any of us would deny. Our minds are influenced by what we put into it. Paul is saying that we need to ensure that we focus on what is good in life, on truth, on love, on kindness, on good creation. He says this is one of the practical keys to having hope and having peace in life. Right now, more than ever, we are being bombarded with fears, with consequences, and with bad news. I am fond of the analogy of our news functioning a little bit like society's pain sensors. That's why so often it's focused on bad news, because we like to be aware and informed of what's not quite working out and what's going on, and oftentimes that is a good thing. But right now, the pain of the world is screaming, and the risk is that if we only focus on the pain, then we will move nowhere except towards despair. So how as Christians can we ensure this healthy diet of thoughts and ideas in our minds to remain balanced? Someone sent me a photo after I taught last week that I think just sums this up in really, really practical terms. Hopefully it will come on the screen. This is um, at the start of the pandemic. She took a sheet of paper and she wrote and drew every truth-filled, hope-filled verse she knew and she kept them close to her mind. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, 
lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. I also asked you guys, the church community, um, for things you have been doing in order to have this diet of hope, to remain hopeful in God in these times. And lots of people sent stuff in, so sorry, I cannot read them all, but I want to speak to some of them or read through some of them because they say them better than I can. Someone wrote in, I listen to worship music. Someone else, I meditate on simple truths from a painting at my parents' house. To be who I am, to be where I am, to be what I am, and to hope. Someone else wrote, I exercise and I invest in things that I enjoy. Someone else, I I choose to be grateful, worship and praise and look how incredible God's creation is. Someone else, I use WhatsApp for instant support from my Christian friends. Someone else, one thing, one practice I don't do is ever give away the ending of Harry Potter. (laughs) Sorry about that, did that last week. If you haven't finished Harry Potter, finish it before you watch last week's sermon. Someone else, and I really, really like how this one is written. I turn to the Psalms to see that I'm not the first person to feel this way, and I find better words than my own. And the last two, someone said, I stand in the truth that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever, which is Hebrews 13 and 8. And the last one, I take it slow in the mornings and I read scripture. These are all examples of following Paul's advice of how we maintain a consistent source of hope and truth in our minds as we live in this time. So if you're looking for one, another very specific practical response for holding on to hope just now, I'd say this. Start and end your day every day with a dose of hope-growing truth. Whether that's for you, music, prayer, meditation, exchanging texts, whatever it is, taking communion, reading scripture, find what works for your situation, for your family, for your personality. Do it first and do it last. As Paul said, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay, so let's land this now. This has been quite an intense two weeks of content Um, and in part I don't apologize for that because my intention has been to avoid at all costs the idea of a simple quick fix for holding on to hope but my hope is I've given us all and trust me myself so much included the chance to go away rethink talk about and pray through all of these things which found our truth and responses, found our hope, sorry, and can be our responses to holding on to that hope. Listening to teaching alone will not embed those foundations of hope in your life. The gospel of Jesus is like the great pearl he talked about, that once you find it, you have to make some actions, you have to give something up in a really positive way to take full hold of it. So we've covered a lot of content partly so that I can hopefully give you as full a picture of a big and wonderful that great pearl of hope is. But we can sum almost all of this up by saying the first way we come to hold hope and where we begin is we hold hope by coming to the one who is hope. At the start of the lockdown, 
I found and read through all 144 uses of the word hope in the Bible, looking for the firmest foundation I could find to hold hope in the most difficult of times. And what struck me is that where's one place in the Bible where the word hope basically is absent, and that's from the mouth of Jesus. He doesn't really use the word hardly ever. And that's because he is hope. So everything I've said last week and everything I've said this week comes together in the person of Jesus in his presence and with us today through his spirit. On the other hand, one place those 144 verses most frequently say we should find hope is simply, quote, in God. As I've written these two teachings, I've realized that those biblical authors do not use hope in God as a bland cliché or a look-on-the-bright-side-of-life attitude, or a dismissal of the realities of sin, suffering, and pain. But they mean it as this. The hope of Christianity is not a feeling, but an assurance of a good future that is secured in the character of God made known in Jesus. The hope of Christianity is not a feeling, but an assurance of a good future that is secured in the character of God made known in Jesus. Um, it has been, yeah, the utmost challenge and kind of privilege to prepare these two teachings. Um, just want to thank everyone who has reached out to me last week and thank Stephen Viv for the trusting me, trusting me with this topic. So we're now going to move into a time of response and ministry. And I encourage you, first and foremost, to go to Jesus. Wherever you are at with your hope, then let him know. And invite his spirit again to come and be with you now. My final words are going to be the prophetic description at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 of where our hope in Jesus is heading. This is the message version. I saw heaven and earth new created. Gone the first heaven, gone the first earth, gone the sea. I saw holy Jerusalem new created, descending, resplendent out of heaven, as ready for God as a bride for her husband. I heard a voice thunder from the throne saying, Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people, he is their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone. Crying gone. Pain gone. All the first order of things are gone. The enthroned continued. Look, I'm making everything new. Write it all down. Every word is dependable. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.